Give your Bibles turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We've been making our way through Luke's gospel, and uh, last week we left off in verse 26. You know, just a decade ago when social media was introduced and popularized, it, it was touted as one of the best ways to reconnect with old friends and a way to make new ones. But as the years have progressed, it seems better suited to help people make more enemies. Long gone are the happy days when Facebook was all about connecting with people and, and connecting with shared interests. Today, it just, it just seems like to, to major on beating down others over the differences you share. Especially in this tumultuous year of 2020 with the differing views of COVID, racial tensions, and now the election, social media has become the new battleground. As I said, Facebook in particular did give us a way to make and establish connections, but it it seems to then give us new opportunities to have more enemies, to strengthen our hate towards other people. I have spent a lot of time counseling others and how to navigate differences on social media. In fact, on the phone yesterday for a a bit, talking through this with someone. I'm ready for the whole platform to go away, but it's not. So we need to know how to, to navigate that. But having enemies is nothing new. Abraham Lincoln delivered a speech at the height of the Civil War, referring to the Southerners as fellow human beings who were an heir. And an elderly lady chastised him for not calling them irreconcilable enemies who must be destroyed. And his response, Abraham Lincoln said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Hatred for our enemies feels like the most natural thing in the world. And it's exactly what the world expects people to do with those that they dislike or disagree with. An enemy is defined as a person who opposes, competes against, or dislikes you. He or she may be a bully on the playground, or a supervisor at work, or a colleague in your field, or a business competitor, or a classmate. It seems that all humans at one point in our lives will have an enemy. So who is your enemy? Who is it that you are against, that you want to silence, to take down? Who is it that you, in your life, can't stand to be around or listen to? Jesus has some words for you this morning. In a day when all sorts of anger and vitriol is spewed across the aisle on social media and the like, Jesus has a better way. And he will tell us this morning, love your enemies. That's the command for a life of a Christian. There's no other way. There's no escape clause. There's no if, and, or but. Love your enemies. We're called to love those that oppose us. And the example and the strength of this task is Christ himself. So here's the main idea We'll circle around this throughout the text. But as children of God, we love others, not for our benefit, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And this is the key for the text here this morning, an amazing love by Christ, which gives us the strength to love like him in this world. So if you haven't already turned to Luke 6, we're going to look at verses 27 through 36 this morning. And so follow with me as I read Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." The punch of these sayings might be lost in us today because they wouldn't have heard it the same way as we might be hearing it this morning. But I can't help but think how, how Simon the Zealot would respond to Jesus' words to love your enemy. He was a revolutionary trying to take down Rome. So this teaching would have not been highly looked upon. It was not a popular teaching by Jesus. And we might float over these sayings But for those that are regularly experiencing injustice, you wouldn't want these plastered over your walls or thrown around nonchalantly. This was hard teaching. You don't have a warm, fuzzy feeling when Jesus teaches this way and says these things because the people in his audience were presently wronged by the Roman government who were trying to to snub him out. So this message from Jesus would be revolutionary to the listeners. To love your enemies And you can almost imagine them saying, Jesus, that's too far. I can't do that. He's going to answer this. He's going to even give us the motivation for it. So I have some questions there. If you get the email of the the bulletin that comes there, um, but they'll be on the screen, hopefully, the, the outline there. Three questions. Who are we to love? How are we to love? And why are we to love? And I pray that this journey through this text will bring much fruit to our lives individually and to the life of our church corporately. So if, let's catch us up to speed. So, Because you've been walking with us through the Gospel of Luke. We looked at the Beatitudes last week. And, and Jesus in that is calling his disciples to a, a different way of life than the rest of the world. And he takes this life to an even higher level with the hardest commandment to love your enemies. And the context of this commandment is, is significant. Jesus had just called 12 to be his apostles and they were divinely appointed ambassadors who would preach his gospel to the world. But no sooner than calling them, he began to teach them what it would mean to follow him. And so he, and we looked at last week, verses 20 through 26, he pronounces four blessings on everyone who would follow him and suffer for his sake. And they would, they would endure poverty and, and hunger and sorrow and persecution. But in their suffering, they would know his favor, his blessing in their life. And then Jesus in that pronounces four woes for them. To those who are self-satisfied people. Who are living for the pleasure of the moment and, and thought that they can do without God. That they don't need God. And he gives them four woes. And for Jesus, there are two kinds of people. 
Those, those that are willing to suffer for Jesus' sake and have blessing, and those who live for themselves and will come to an unhappy end. So, and, and how does this connect? Well, it, this passage this morning it shows the first group and how they relate to the second group. How does the first group of the blessings relate to the second group? That's what Jesus is going to tackle here this morning. So, first question, who are we to love? It says in verse 27 and 28, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you're going to be a Christ follower, a Christian, you need to love your enemies. An enemy is someone that's hostile towards you, an adversary. Jesus says that these enemies hate you. They detest you. They have no displayed love for you. An enemy is someone who who's ex, you're experiencing estrangement from, someone who's against you, someone whose hostility prevents us from responding warmly to them. They dislike you. They can't stand you. He says even that they curse you. That, that means they're calling down from God to bring you harm. And, and to curse is a direct opposite of blessing someone because to bless someone is to call upon God to bring benefit to their life. It means to speak well of them. And Jesus says our enemies are those that, that look to cut us down, those that are belligerent to us, those that talk about us behind our backs, those that, that threaten us, those that seek to take us down. Jesus says also we're to love those who abuse you, and those are speaking about those that mistreat you or revile, revile you. It's people who speak derogatory about you. They accuse you of things that aren't true. And these people are given to gossip and slander. Now, I need to unpack slander for a moment because I think we pass over it too quickly. The word slanderer appears in the Bible 34 times. And every time, it's a designation for the devil. He is the great accuser. And mirroring his methods in life or on social media is not unfortunate. It's not even mistaken it's satanic. You are most like Satan when you slander someone else. Slander is a form of vandalism. It defaces God's most valuable property on earth, human beings, divine works of art who bear his signature, who are crafted in his image. Every living person possesses infinite dignity and worth and should be treated as such. See, Jesus is not defending slander. He's teaching his disciples what to do when you face it. And they will be slandered for serving him. They will be gossiped about. Jesus also says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Jesus isn't endorsing that we just suck it up when we're physically abused. That's not what he's saying. Some people have understood it this way and have taught that even if a wife is being abused, suffering physically or verbally or even sexually, or a child is suffering abuse, that they're just to take it. And I want to say emphatically, that is wrong. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. And if you're presently being abused either by your spouse or by a teacher or a parent, physically, emotionally, verbally. You need to tell someone. 
You need to come find one of us as leaders. Physical abuse or sexual abuse is not endorsed by Jesus. He's not telling you to, to suck it up and to keep taking it. You need to ask for help, and if possible, remove yourself from the situation as quickly as possible. And we have, as leaders, a God-given responsibility to protect and to preserve life. We will not, as leaders, seek to deal with abuse in-house only. We will bring it to the authorities that God has given us. One commentator said, This turn-the-other-cheek rule cannot mean to keep civil government from punishing evildoers. Civil government is ordained by God. 1 Peter 2 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so justice obligates us both to uphold the law and to insist that others do it as well. And reporting crime is both a civic responsibility and an act of compassion. So God, in his grace, he gave us authorities to punish wrongdoing. And we, as a church and as a leadership, will submit to them when we learn of wrongdoing. So if turning the other cheek doesn't mean accepting physical abuse, what is Jesus meaning here? Again, this is why it's helpful to look at the context of what Jesus is teaching here. He's, he's telling his disciples that they would be persecuted for their faith, and that's still the context of what he's saying. They, they would have to endure that without fighting back. Jesus is teaching them to love those that verbally abuse them as they seek to preach the gospel. And I want, to note, want you to notice, because this is the, the, really the, the crux of it, to love. Jesus talks about this love here, and he's talking about agape love. That's the Greek word for love that's throughout this passage. Leon Morris in his commentary says, there are several words for love in Greek. Jesus was not asking for story, which is a natural affection, nor was he asking for eros, which is a romantic love, and not even um, phila, which is a love of friendship. He was speaking of agape, which means love even of the unworthy, love which is not drawn out by merit in the beloved, but which proceeds from the fact that the lover chooses to be a loving person. And agape love is the strangest of all loves because it's unnatural. It only comes by the supernatural work of God. And Jesus would be showing them how to love like this. And don't miss it, friends. He, he already has been doing this. We've already walked through this. Just consider going back a chapter or two when Jesus stood next to Peter and stepped into his boat to preach to the large crowd that had gathered, he borrowed a boat from his enemy. Peter might be kind in, in lending the boat, but what was filling his heart was hostility towards God. He was living his life for himself before he met Jesus. So before salvation, we're not somewhat tolerable towards God. We are totally opposed to God. Before salvation, we're enemies of God. I don't know if this shocks you, but this is what the Bible teaches. And Jesus further displays this type of supernatural love when he then leaves a house after healing someone and walks by the tax collector's booth, right? We looked at this, and Levi's there, and he's working, and he calls him to follow him. And Levi was a sinner, and a cruel one at best. 
He was an adversary of Jesus since birth. See, Paul talks about this in Romans 5. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for Peter, for Matthew, for John, his apostle. For the one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus displays this agape love. Every one of these men standing before him and walking with him, Jesus is teaching them. They were his enemies and Jesus shows this agape love. He displays what love looks like as he calls them to himself and saves them. And he will continue to do this in his life and ministry. And we'll see the culmination of this agape love when Jesus, nailed to a cross, cries out before death, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is love. That is agape love. And for Jesus to hate would be to surrender to evil, and Jesus would never do that, and he wouldn't teach his disciples to do it either. So how do we do it? How do we love? How is it possible to love our enemies? We all have enemies. Some of them are public, a greedy company that takes advantage of its employees, or a toxic politician who introduces dehumanizing legislation or who terrorizes people or a dictator who persecutes the church or a terrorist who brings war and destruction. And yet there's enemies that are even more personal like the demeaning boss or the scheming coworker, maybe even the spouse or the former friend who gossips about you behind your back. Who is your enemy? Who is it that Christ is calling you to love? Second question, how do we love them? As we see, love is a duty for the Christian. It's more than a feeling, it's the activity for those that follow Jesus. And Jesus is, is changing culture here. The new ethos for the Christian is not built on retaliation, it, it, it's not given to vengeance, it's built on love. And Jesus then gives an illustration from daily life for the Jews. Some believe that verses 29 and 30, the, the striking of the cheek is to be taken literally. We've talked about it already. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily what it is. There is mention that in the ancient world that if you wanted to insult someone, to humiliate them publicly, you slap them with the back of your hand on their cheek. But either way, he is speaking to get their attention. So he calls them to consider their ways. And he's, he's, think, he's using hyperbole in these statements, and it's, it's hard to really understand the full extent when it's read, but you would pick up on it if you were sitting there hearing him speak. And he's being here extreme, just like when Jesus is teaching us about forgiveness in, in the other gospel accounts. Remember what he says there? He, someone asked him, Jesus, you talk about it, so how often do we need to forgive? And Jesus' has answered. do you remember his answer? 70 times 7. He's not giving them the math equation for them to figure out, okay, once I hit 490, 491, I can stop forgiving. It's not what Jesus is doing here. 
the picture that Jesus is painting, it's that we're to be long-suffering. It's to feel like that, like you just continually forgive when they come and ask for forgiveness. We have to have this forgiving nature. And we forgive so much that it might seem like 490 times. And so I believe Jesus is putting forward a response not to physical violence, but, but really, I, I think, a response to insult. And if someone insults us, we're not to respond in kind. We shouldn't trade insult for insult. Christ is our example in this. He, he accepted the insults of the world and he didn't even open his mouth. And, and followers of Jesus should not retaliate in like manner. We don't develop our pattern of living from the world and from those that would victimize us. We develop how we live by following Jesus Christ. So how are we to love? We, we turn the other cheek when we're insulted by others. What about the example Jesus gives here in verse 30? He says, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. This, along with the question about how we're to deal with those, you know, of, of striking the cheek, this can confuse many Christians. So if you're tempted to email me with certain situations about what we should do in this, just email ryan.peterson <laughs> at Edgewood Bible Church. He'll give you the same response. We don't have all the answers for all these things. But my encouragement to you is to spend this, this afternoon, this lunch, and talk about this. And really, what I want you to do is look, look at the question beneath the question. Okay? Should I give away all my goods? Should I give away all my stuff? How do I respond? How do I think about my things, my stuff? You know, what if I'm minding my own business, walking out of work, and this homeless person comes and asks for some change? What do I do? I don't have an answer for that specific. You need to, to think through these things. I, I don't think the act of preaching is to answer all of those questions either. You see, I think when you hear hard and demanding words from Jesus, our temptation is the same temptation of the Pharisees. You know what they did, right? Their first response is, when do I not have to obey God's law? What are the exceptions? Give me the rule book. Give me every instance to know how to live. They just wanted a way out. They were always looking for loopholes. Are you looking for loopholes in your obedience to Jesus? You need to ask yourself this. Ask the questions beneath the question. See, I, th I think the point uh, of these challenges that Jesus brings here is calling us to have a giving spirit. He's more concerned about our attitude towards the needs of people rather than protection of our property and our rights. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they should be aware of the needs of people around them and not to turn a blind eye. This life is not all about ourselves. The question should always be, what can I give? And never, what will I get in return? So Jesus is saying that the spirit that is to characterize the Christian in the kingdom of God is willingness to give to others. Sacrificial giving is the mark of the Christian. And our love towards sinners is to be unselfish, disinterested, and uninfluenced by any hope of return. 
J.C. Ryle said, the Christian must be altogether another style of man. His feelings of love and his deeds of kindness must be like his master's, free and gratuitous. Well, another way that Jesus asks and teaches us the, the love, Jesus says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To bless is from the Greek word eulogia, which you get the word eulogy, right? To give a eulogy is to, for someone else means that we're speaking well of them, we're, we're blessing them. And we should be known for our love and our speech, using gentle words of grace when people speak to us in anger. To pray here, too, is to love also. It says to pray for your enemies with our hearts and our souls. To ask God to rescue from sin the people who injure us, either with their words or actions. And together, our words and actions and prayers from a, form a powerful response to the hatred of our enemies. Rather than giving in to their evil by making an angry response, we triumph over evil with love and good deeds. And just so you know, friends, you can pray for those who abuse you from a safe distance. You don't have to stay in close contact with them. You don't have to be buddy-buddy with those that injure you with their words and actions, but you're to love them. You're to pray for them. Sinners return evil for evil. Disciples of Jesus are to return love for evil. Here's another example where to love. Jesus says to love your enemies and to do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. To expect nothing in return means to not place your hopes in the person but in God. In a culture where most live in the margins and were one bad harvest away from total ruin, a poor person to lend to another would seem rather risky. The concern is that it would lose what they have lent. Wealthy people are different who would be happy to lend money because they would have so much set aside and perhaps they would believe that they would gain a debtor who would be unable to pay them back. It was the way to the wrestle land from peasants through their failure to pay. It was a way for the rich to become richer and the poor to become poor. But here's Jesus turning the world on its head and he expects his disciples to lend to their enemies without expectation, no strings attached. To expect nothing in return changes a loan into a gift and then it becomes an act of grace. And when it comes to money, Jesus commands that no one should use it to serve the needs of others and not for one's own material self-interest. We sometimes get that wrong. We sometimes think only that the money is here just for me. Jesus talks a lot about money, a lot, but we won't this morning. We'll get into it as we get through the gospel. Well, to love others means that we should be quick to not hold grudges, to bless and pray for those who hurt us, and to give as the Lord has given us. So that's number two. Number three, why are we to love them? It says in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if this talking about a response to enemies seems strange to you. I, I just, 
I can't help but think how humorous it would be if a politician got on stage and talked about this during the, the election cycle. Right? The world would be flabbergasted. What are you talking about? So maybe you're coming in this morning and you're thinking the same thing. This seems so strange. Jeff, you don't understand the world that I live in. Maybe it seems a little far-fetched. Maybe you, maybe you think it's, it just sounds made up, right? This, this is really not real. But friend, it's not made up. And it is real. And we know this because how God loves us. He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And who are the ungrateful and evil? That would be us. All of us. That's what the Bible says. All of us by nature are ungrateful and evil. We are enemies of God. It's not that we don't ever do good things. I know we do. But we're all kind of twisted, even in the good that we do. We all serve ourselves. When push comes to shove, we naturally do what's best for ourselves, not what's best for others. And that kind of ingratitude, that kind of unloving attitude doesn't put off God pursuing us in his mercy and love. That's what's happening when, when God sends his own son to earth to show us what this love looks like. Jesus comes to live among us and to die for us, to accept the penalty that we deserve because of the way we've lived. He accepted our penalty in the place of us on the cross. He took our punishment. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. That's you. And then God raised Jesus from the dead. He accepted the sacrifice. And now he calls all of us from our lives of evil and ingratitude to turn to Christ in faith alone, to trust in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you've never trusted in Christ, perhaps today God brought you among us to save you, to turn you from your sin of trust in yourself and to trust in him alone. And my Christian friends, the capstone for this section is verse 36. He says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. The whole section is how Christ has acted, how he lived for us. So this is what Christ's followers should be, how, the, how, how we should live. If we are sons of the Most High, we're displaying it by our mercy. We will live as merciful as our Father has been merciful with us. We will live that same way. God is merciful, so his children must be merciful as well. It isn't so much a question of following rules or, every, or even clamoring for justice. It's a question of inheriting by new birth the Father's nature and exhibiting that nature by behaving as his children. Children of God act like their Father in their behavior towards other humans. Furthermore, as Christians, we want the world to know that we serve the Most High God. We want the world to know him, to love him, to worship him. And friends, when we act like our father, it pleases him. And he gives us a promise here that he'll eventually reward us. That's his promise to us. Not in this life, but in the life to come. You may be sitting here and you may be thinking, it's easier to love those that love you back. Well, you're right. It is. To be kind to those who are kind to you. To give to those who 
you can be confident you'll give, get it back or to give to those who all the time give to you. Jesus says this is nothing new. This is not new to the world. This is exactly how the world views love. And frankly, Jesus thinks your Christianity is too weak. It's not radical. It's not new. It's not revolutionary. Jesus says, get that weak stuff out of here. He tells us in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He's saying, if that's your view of love, that's weak. Everyone does this. That's earthly. It's natural. It isn't heavenly. It's not supernatural. And loving people, especially our enemies, distinguishes us from the world. It sets us apart from the world, from people who do not know God. In other words, people who do not know God, who do not live for God, demonstrate this kind of love all the time. There's, there's nothing supernatural about this type of love. It's a cheap kind of love. It's a fake love. It doesn't cost anything. And ultimately, it doesn't mean very much. But genuinely supernatural, God-like love means we love our enemies who wrong and who insult us. This is how Christians show that their relationship with God is real and not manufactured. So how do we apply this message this morning? Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them. So we love them, we bless them, we pray for them, and endure this mistreatment. We give to them, expecting nothing back. So friends, make a mental note of the people who you think are your enemies, and then obey what Christ has given us. Remain generous and vulnerable to everyone and anyone. And verse 31 teaches us how to live as Christians. It says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Christian love should be generous, forbearing, patient, and gracious, treating others as we would wish to be treated. But let me bring it home a little more closer for some of you. Not for all, but for some. When Jesus says, love your enemies, it might be the very people that live the closest to you. Here are two examples, and I know I could have had 30. I just chose two because you all want to have lunch, right? First is marriage. I have long noticed that the major cause of conflict between husbands and wives is a failure of living out these verses on a regular basis. And we can quickly let our marriages slide into a kind of transactional relationship where instead of thinking first about what we can give and how we can serve, we think first and most often of what we can get. And there are husbands and wives that give only so that they can receive back. And they keep a tally of all of their spouse has done for them and they compare it to the tally of all that they've done for them. And they get upset when the equation doesn't equal out. And friends, all of that is self-love. If Jesus says, love your enemy, then surely he also says, love your spouse. If he calls you 
to love your enemy in sacrificial ways, then surely he is calling you to love your spouse in even more sacrificial ways. Second, the church. I've heard it said a few times in the last few weeks, last few months, and I, I think if we're all honest, we struggle with this sometimes to love closest, those closest to us. We seem to struggle to love, love those that we have an expectation of, of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And when brothers and sisters in the Lord disappoint us, we can too easily fall into a trap of hate and disgust. It seems easier on the outside to commit to love those who reject God than to those who say they love God. We don't expect different from a degenerate world that opposes the Savior and has no spirit to sanctify them. But we do expect different from fellow Christians. After all, they should be grace givers and peacemakers, right? Friends, are you ready to love the enemy sitting with us this morning at church? Knowing that they've hurt you, that they've gossiped about you, that they've slandered you. Are we ready to love our enemy when they make unfair judgments and fail to show us the grace they demand for themselves? Are, they, are we ready to love our enemy when they continually exclude us or make insensitive comments about us? Are we ready to love our enemy when they vote differently than us? Or have different views of COVID than us? Somehow, we as the church have fooled ourselves into thinking that this election right here in 2020 is the most important one of all time. You know, they've been saying that since the 70s. And I think they're right. Every one is the most important. They all seem important. But what happens in our churches is that we've bought the lie that this is the one to divide over. Friends, whoever sits in the White House should never be allowed to divide God's house. So we can't let it happen. So vote, but don't divide. Love. We need to love one another, even when we disagree about important things. Jesus says, love your enemies and do good. So we love those that disagree with us. And we bless those that oppose us. And we pray for them all. And we endure mistreatment and hate. And we give back to them, expecting nothing in return. Friends, are you ready to live as Jesus intends us to live? Are you ready to love as Jesus commands us to love? He will give us the strength and the grace we need to live and to serve him. So trust in him, friends. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning 
What difficult words these are. And we ask that you would help us to love our enemies. This is hard because if we're honest, we continually want to rely on ourselves to do it. And we have convinced ourselves that we are self-sufficient for the task. We have convinced ourselves in our thoughts and our actions that we don't need you when it comes to loving others, and we are dead wrong. God, we need you. We need a supernatural love for those that surround us. And we recognize that this is unnatural to us. So help us to not lean on ourselves, but to lean on you. Help us to simply live out the love that we have received from you, whose spirit lives in us. And it's an unbound reservoir from which we can draw from, and as a result, we're able to love undeserving people with tenacity and joy. Help us to love this way, God. And Father, we thank you, and we'll sing of it in a moment. We thank you that us, once your enemy, is now seated at your table, once opposed to you in every way, now because of Jesus Christ, we're accepted And we thank you. We thank you, Father, for sending Jesus Christ to die for us. And may we live for him as we leave this place. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.